Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dr. Anna Scott, Chief Science Officer for Project Canary. Project Canary is a data analytics and environmental assessment company committed to accelerating the path to net zero. They focus on methane emissions measurement and reduction, freshwater use, and community impacts for energy-intensive industries. They also recently raised a massive Series B, I was excited for this one because Anna's got a fascinating story. She's got her PhD in atmospheric science, was not seeking to be an entrepreneur, but as she says, entrepreneurship found her. We talk about where her passion for tackling climate came from, her path to becoming an entrepreneur, the early days and lessons learned as she set out down that path. We talk about the merger and how that came about, when that came about, why that came about, and of course... We talk all about Project Canary, their origin story, their progress to date, their long vision, what problem they're solving, what customers they serve, and have a fascinating discussion in the end about working with big oil and gas companies and what Anna's thoughts are on the future of big oil and gas, and also how to work with them and still feel good that you're having an impact on accelerating the clean energy transition. This was a great one, and I hope you enjoy it. Anna? Welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming. And we were just chatting before we hit record here, but I can't remember from who, but you and I were first introduced very early on in my climate journey and pre-Project Canary for you. And we had a great discussion at the time and we haven't talked since. So I'm so psyched to reconnect with you and hear everything you've been up to, which it sounds like has been a whole lot. Yeah. And, and likewise, you know, it's been so exciting to follow the climate journey along the way to, to where it is now. Kudos to all the success that you've had. And it's definitely been a journey. 
I don't know if you feel that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I do. I, I mean, I think the name is really apt. And it's also got staying power because it's not like it's one day going to not be a journey. I mean, it's such a complicated problem. And then the landscape continues to evolve in terms of the, I mean, the world and, you know, where we're at with everything, but also like the different solutions, the policy landscape, the consumer sentiment, the geopolitics, the like, even just look at the events of, you know, the last few months with Ukraine, for example, like who could have predicted and, and it has a lot of implications, the pandemic, like who could have predicted and it has a lot of implications. So, you know, life isn't dull. It's a lot to keep up with. No, life is definitely a journey. And if you do meet somebody who says they have it all figured out, please introduce them to me. I'd I'd love to learn from them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for starters, Anna, maybe for the the audience's benefit and for mine, can you give a quick overview of Project Canary and what the company does? Yeah, absolutely. So Project Canary is an ESG data analytics company that helps emitting industries get to net zero using measurements. So we have two signature products, one of which is our sensors that we put on facilities, and we measure emissions in real time. And I think we're best known for our measurements of methane because we do them continuously. So we've insisted that we need 24-7 continuous monitoring, particularly in what's called the upstream oil and gas sector. We have this other product, which is an environmental assessment that we take a really rigorous look at the engineering of facilities, not only the wells, but now the pipes as well, to understand how well somebody did constructing their energy facilities, basically. And what people have really started using that for is to actually differentiate the natural gas commodity, not only on the basis of chemicals, which is, you know, that's a standard way to differentiate commodities, but on the basis of environmental attributes. And that's something that we've, we've seen take off. But all in all, we think about ourselves as a data company that provides really robust and rigorous measurements that the economy needs to get, to get us moving towards net zero. Great. And and maybe talk a little bit about how you came to be doing the work that you do, especially because I I think you have your, what, doctorate in atmospheric science? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, I think I... I meet many people who say, oh, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I knew from, you know, a little kid playing Monopoly, that was not the case for me. You know, entrepreneurship, I think, came to me rather than me going to it. I'm happy we found each other. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard it described, it like personified in this way. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was going to be a, a scientist. You know, when I went to college, I studied math. I did a master's degree. I did a PhD. In my PhD program, I was studying climate science. And what made you decide to become a scientist in the first place? I wish I knew. I think, you know, my parents were scientists. I always well, there you go. Them. That yeah. explains a lot. That typically, well, it's not always how it goes, but it seems to go that way a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think as a kid, like, what do you know? Like, I was like, I don't know anything about the world, you know? And, you know, I, I saw them working on really challenging problems. I saw them working on really political problems, really tough problems. And I think as a kid, I always had this aptitude for math. And, you know, it wasn't really clear what you do with that. Like, there are very few people in the world who, who work as mathematicians. And, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But, you know, people suggested that because I had some of this aptitude, they're like, you should think about going into science. This was probably around the time when Obama was like, hey, you know, we need more people studying STEM in the U.S. And so I just kind of kept following my nose a little bit. And I found out about climate Probably my freshman year of college, because one of my 
professors, who is, I think, what you know, you'd call a climate scientist now, was teaching this field course where we got to go out on a tall ship. And I was like, this sounds really great. This does not sound like real school. Like, I'm going to go like live on a sailboat for a little bit. And I did do that. And it was great. And I, it was a lot of fun. But I also learned about this thing called climate change. And it turns out that in order to understand climate change, we need a lot of math. So there's a lot of mathematical modeling that goes into that. There's a lot of equations. There's a lot of physics. And so it, you know, ended up marrying really nice with my background. And at the time, it was quite exciting because, you know, there are these these scandals you'd read about in the newspaper and then you'd hear about them in the classroom. So, you know, to take this really far back, there was something called like Climate Gate. This was probably back in like 2009 or 10 or something where all these professors got their emails hacked by, you know, anti-climate activists. And, you know, that was pretty exciting to me. Like I had never done something that was worthy of hacking. But like hacking my inbox, like my inbox was probably like, you know, hey, you guys, you know, going to go to this party this weekend. <laughs> So I think that was really my hook. And so you were on a track to be a scientist and you said that you didn't go out to find entrepreneurship. It found you. Maybe talk a little bit about how it found you. <laughs> so eventually I kept going and, you know, to be a working scientist, I'd observed that many people had a PhD. So I thought, okay, like I'll go to PhD school and you can get scholarships for that. So it was like, great, I'm not going to starve. This is awesome. And someone pitched me this idea that I, you know, for a research project, I would do some field work, which was, that was like even crazier. I was like, you want me to go outside? Like, I'm not particularly athletic. I'm not, wasn't a super outdoorsy person, but I ended up going around and, and doing a lot of measurements of temperature. And in doing that, I talked with a lot of people because I was doing this in cities. And so if you're like out and about in the middle of the day doing something weird, you look like you're out of place. I was often in neighborhoods where, you know, it's a very different ethnicity than a lot of people. I was also, you know, a young woman. People would come up and talk to me and they'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, you know, we'd get in a conversation and, you know, I'd talk about, you know, I'm an environmental scientist. I'm working with the city or I'm working with the Red Cross or I'm working with you know, whatever group it was that I was working with. And eventually would come back around to what they were most concerned about. And I just want to quickly interject. Too bad this was pre-TikTok because this would be fascinating. I would follow your channel if, if you were recording <laughs> these discussions when these people approached you. <laughs> well, I don't know if I look so flattering. That's the other thing. Like when you're out in public, like the public always has the last word. Like I met so many people like they should have had me on like their TikTok channels. I would have followed them. But, you know, eventually it came up that people were really interested in air pollution and they were really concerned about what they were breathing. You know, people knew a lot of people who had asthma or COPD or any of these diseases. And they would ask me, is the air that I'm breathing clean? And I would say, gee, golly gosh, like, I don't know. And that seemed really not super satisfying for a number of reasons. One was because they perceived that based off of my introductions, I was an expert and I knew more about this than, than they did. And so I ought to know. But I didn't know, and I started looking into it, and I started asking regulators and companies and NGOs and activists, and everyone had the same answer, which was that the technology to monitor what's in our air is too expensive. And I'd say, okay, why? And nobody had a good answer for that. They would just say, because. And I thought, well, that, that can't be right. Like, we've seen technology costs decrease precipitously for so many components of our supply chain. You know, we have Moore's Law applying to, was it transistor density on chips? We have laser prices are now following Moore's Law. So, you know, I, I found that that was a really unsatisfying answer. And I kind of set out to, to figure this out on my own. And, you know, several years later, here we are, you know, we've got thousands of sensors out in the wild that are 
that are telling folks what their climate emissions are in real time. And so once you started on this quest to figure out why the existing tools were so expensive, what did you uncover and what was your initial hypothesis in terms of how you would do it differently and what it was about your approach that gave you the conviction that it would succeed where it sounds like so many others have failed? Oh, gosh, Jason, here's where I'm supposed to have a strong answer to be like, you know, the moment I set out to do this, I was like, yes, this is what we're doing. And I know how we're going to do it. Lightning bolt in the shower, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) No, I mean, I think the short answer is there's a little bit of the bumbling naivete of like, you don't know what you don't know, and just kind of put one foot in front of the other kept talking to people and, you know, really want to emphasize the did not know what I didn't know piece. (laughs) But I think about this a lot, because there's a lot of like, quote unquote, experts who have been at this a long time and, you know, we're through the last clean tech wave and things like that. And it's not that their their battle scars aren't hard earned or extremely valuable, but it's a double edged sword because just like they know where the landmines are, they can also sometimes be jaded where sometimes you just need that blind ignorance because like situationally it's a different time and it might even not be things that you can put your finger on or that would even be visible to you, but it just might work out different with more shots on goal, even if it wasn't a different approach, right? And so it's very hard to know like what to, what advice is going to save you and what advice is, is going to, you know, set you off course when you were so close if you had only tried. Oh, and I totally love the phrase blind ignorance, because I, I think there's certainly some of that as well. But no, totally. And I and I think, you know, there's there's all almost certainly some element of luck. You know, at the time I'd never heard of clean tech. Like, yeah, I knew what like solar panels were, you know, but other than that, I think there is something to be said for having and there's something to be said. I'll finish that. There's something to be said for having enough ignorance to go after something. But there is some luck involved as well. You know, I I was young. I didn't have dependents. I didn't have family members I was taking care of. I was, you know, straight out of graduate school. Was it just you? At that point, I had some buddies in graduate school who, you know, along the way, I was kind of like drafting people to be like, hey, you know, like, I know you love like hacking together stuff with Arduino and, you know, hey, I know you really can do really good industrial design, I think didn't even know what that phrase was at the time. And so, you know, it was just kind of Saturdays, evenings, you know, eventually somebody suggested we do a a crowdfunding product. And so you you were in a PhD program at the time? Yeah. So this is kind of like my- That's pretty intense, right? Like just to keep up with the academics, like (laughs) entrepreneurship aside. And you just kind of, for sport, you were just like, you know, moonlighting on getting a company off the ground. Yeah. I mean, I think at the time I didn't really know it was going to be a company. I thought this was just like, you know, something I was exploring and something I was interested in. I was so lucky that I had people around me that were encouraging me to kind of explore. They didn't think it would go very far. Like I remember this one time somebody found out that the the EPA was, was having a grant application. And so they, you know, they sent it to me and they're like, oh, this would be really good experience for Anna to apply for this, you know, because she won't get it, but she'll be able to like do it better next time when she goes on in her scientific career. And I remember we ended up getting the application. We ended up getting the grant and one of my professors saw me and he like high-fived me. And, you know, I, I had two kind of supervising, I essentially two bosses that I worked for. And I remember after high-fiving me, he said, oh boy, you know, your other boss is going to kill me because like, <laughs> you're never going to graduate at this rate. So I think there are some folks that, 
you know, were lucky to support me. But yeah, there were also some trade offs. And I got some lucky breaks, like, you know, one of my PhD advisors, you know, had a sabbatical one summer and was off in Australia. And so, you know, there I probably wasn't progressing as fast that summer as I was some of the other times. But I think it's all worked out in the end. And so was there a specific moment that you recall where it graduated from project to company? Well, certainly I remember the first time somebody said, hey, I'd like to give you money for this widget. I thought, wow, oh, that's that's really interesting. I think really at the time I thought, oh, this could be like a cool community nonprofit. You know, I really had no idea. And then I ended up meeting, I remember who it was. It was actually Ben Jealous, who's with Kapor Ventures. And he was at our university for the day, just like mentoring in the startup center. And someone had, you know, taken a shine to me and they were like, oh, Anna, like you're not in our, whatever our startup programs, but like, do you want to come down? And I had actually biked over. And in the time that it took me to get over to come to my appointment, they had canceled it. So I showed up and I was like, I'm here for my meeting with this like VC. I'd never met a VC before. And they're like, oh, like that sucks, Anna. Like we've canceled your meeting. And I was like, oh, darn. But they're like, you know, (laughs) and I just I think there's so many lucky breaks. They're like, why don't you just sit here and like maybe if there's like a hole in the schedule, we'll just, you know, get you your five minutes or something. And so I got five minutes with with Vangelis and who's a venture capitalist and who's more importantly, a social impact venture capitalist. And he just, you know, I explained what we were working on. And he said, hey, you know, have you considered like making a a scalable business out of this. And I was like, nope. (laughs) And he was like, well, (laughs) and and I think even worse, I think I was like, well, I don't, you know, I don't really know if this is the type of thing that people want to pay for. So it makes me think it's more of like a a nonprofit type model. And he, he said, well, you know, there's this thing called like social impact venture capital. Like, have you ever heard of this? And I was like, nope, (laughs) no idea. You know, so anyways, long story short, he ended up agreeing to take a longer meeting with me and was like, here's some books that you should read. And one of them was this book, Lean Startup, which, you know, this is like Startup 101 at this point. But I had to have somebody, you know, tell me like, here, like, why don't you read The Innovator's Dilemma and like, you know, Lean Startup and and all of this other stuff. Because at this point, I had had, you know, in my, my career, I had worked with some pretty big name organizations. You know, I'd done consulting work for NASA and the World Bank. I had was volunteering for the Red Cross's climate center. So I'd worked with really large organizations, but like not on the commercial side. So in terms of how to make like a corporate sale, I was like, I have no idea. I'd set up these partnerships. I'd set up public private partnerships, but really limited on some of the other experience. So, you know, but I was eager to learn and I said, tell me what to do and I'll, I'll, I'll do it and I'll read it. And so, you know, I read the stack of books and, and started looking into startup accelerators and that was kind of it. So I don't know if that was a lightning bolt moment, but I think that was certainly a moment of luck where I was a little bit lost in the wilderness. And, you know, someone was able to give me a little bit of a nudge. And maybe talk about some of those early iterations and learnings and also, you know, fast forward to how the merger with Project Canary came about. And then we can switch gears and, of course, talk about the work that you're doing today. Yeah, I mean, oh, like so many lessons. I <laughs> I should probably, you know, sit down and, and distill this. No, I don't know. I think we've just kept running. But it's so funny. I was just catching up with a, another founder the other night. And we were just laughing and saying, you know, we would do this so much better if we got a second chance to do it again. Just like all of the silly mistakes. That's how I feel about high school or college <laughs> or <laughs> definitely you sports. Like, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's life, I guess. 
Yeah, no, it, it totally is. And so it's, it's understandable. I mean, I think some of the early lessons were really just around like asking for help, you know, building out a network, you know, when people offer to meet with you, like keep them updated, keep them in the loop. Like even if you think it's only bad news, like keep in contact with them. You know, like I would at this point, I like lost contact with Vangelis, but like it, it would be so awesome to be like, hey, you know, like, I don't know if you remember this, but like, you know, this was a pretty crazy journey that you nudged me on. And so I think some of those early, early lessons are that is like, you know, build it with a team, build it with a group and then take people along with you. There's then, of course, a lot more tactical lessons around fundraising. Like the first time you've done any fundraising, that's really scary. And I actually, you know, I looked out because I got into an accelerator and that was our first check was from Techstars. You know, folks who go after their local angel groups, like I live in awe of, like, I I don't know how they pull that together, especially as first time founders. You know, my hats are certainly off to them. And then I think maybe the, the third one is, it probably still goes back to network. It's definitely surround yourself with a a good team of people. And if there's holes in what that team looks like, go get it and prioritize that and prioritize that above other stuff. So there you go, Jason. There's there's three lessons. I'm sure there are many more. Well, those are some lessons, but maybe talk about the experiences that informed those lessons. I think, you know, the, the leap of faith that I took and that I encouraged my then team of my little gang of, of scientists from graduate school to take with me was that we would figure it all out along the way. And that is certainly something that happened. You know, I think there's the run of the mill stories like, oh, that time we like, you know, forgot to do the budgeting in the right order because we didn't realize like what a net 60 contract looked like and, you know, almost ran out of money and delivering our first prototypes. I think that one's definitely classic. But, you know, I think there was also the more frustrating moments like, you know, when we went through our accelerator program. And a lot of a lot of our mentors were like, who are these guys? And like, they don't know what they're doing. And we didn't always get, you know, the firmest advice and in like the best direction to go. And actually, I think when we started going after this, this like now pretty big methane market, initially, a lot of people were like, that's not a good idea. And don't do that, Anna. And, you know, I, I didn't listen. And so, you know, I think there's probably some lessons there with make sure that you have good advisors, but also you want folks who have domain expertise, right? And sometimes, you know, we have a lot of folks who are really, really interested in in climate and clean tech, but, you know, may not know the industry, may not know, you know, the specific vertical that you or niche that you might be selling into. And then sometimes maybe you're just pitching something that doesn't make sense yet, because certainly one funny story I tell is that I approached one strategic venture capitalist venture capital fund that's affiliated with with the company, a large big name company. And I remember the investors like, Anna, like operators hate what you're doing. Like they hate what you're selling. Like this is a terrible business model. You know, flash forward two years later, they're considering an investment and COVID happened, flash forward another year later, and, and they're our customer and they're announcing it quite publicly. And so I think that's the other lesson here is that, you know, you can get all the advice you want in the world, but sometimes people are wrong and they're wrong about the companies that they represent. So even when someone tells you my company is not interested in this, that might not be a true statement forever. And when you said earlier that that people were skeptical of the market you were going after and that there's some lessons there, were the lessons about the market or about what were the lessons there? Oh, boy. I mean, 
clearly I'm like still processing this because I, I can't clarify this. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I need the lesson, I don't know, re- reach out to me and I'll come up with the lesson in the time it takes us to process and post this episode. I mean, I think some of it is you got to be early. You certainly do have to be early. And if you're, you know, if you're doing some type of like venture backable startup, I think about it like surfing. I'm a very mediocre surfer, but in surfing, there's a wave, you want to catch the wave, but you got to be in advance of the wave and you got to like, you got to paddle before the wave gets to you in order to get the wave to carry you. And I think that can be really tough because a lot of times, you know, today, A, many people who are starting technology type companies are starting software companies, for example. And so the traditional forms of capital raising are off the table for them. So you have to turn to friends and family for money. And, you know, maybe you're doing something like we do that involves hardware and that makes it even worse to go to, you know, traditional venture capitalists because they're like, oh, like this isn't really the right model. So you need to get that early money. But a lot of folks say, well, we don't really want to give you money until you have like early revenue. And so this is a really tough problem to solve for a lot of people. I can't claim to have totally figured it out myself because I think we just did the traditional thing of like, you know, you underpay yourselves and you kind of wait for the market to pick up. And then I think, you know, on the flip side, a lot of people were like, well, if people aren't paying you, then they're probably not interested in this product. And I think it turned out folks like the wave just hadn't hit yet. Got it. So when people were saying it's a bad market with the benefit of hindsight, it might have been a bad market at the time, but that was because it was early. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Uh-huh. And the market that you're referring to is methane monitoring? Yeah. So our our largest customer segment is upstream oil and gas companies. So, you know, when you go to fill gasoline in your car, if you have an internal combustion engine, if you turn on your, your stove in the morning to make coffee, and that's a gas stove, or, you know, you're barbecuing with like a propane grill, all of those products come from the ground originally, and the folks who, who pull it up and, and turn it into those products are oil and gas companies. And as part of that, producing those fuels, it turns out that a fair amount of emissions gets lost, essentially gets gets released into the air, whether through you know negligence, whether through equipment design. Sometimes stuff is just designed to emit stuff. And it turns out it causes a pretty big environmental problem. And so, you know, we proposed, well, we made a sensor that could measure that and could, could do it from the facility level. Whereas at the time, you know, it was pretty common for people to walk by a site once a, a year to be in compliance with regulations. Somebody had come up with planes and satellites and and drones that would fly over the site. But we said, you know, we think it's going to be necessary to monitor these 24-7. And and this market, I think today is is quite big. If you talk to, you know, somebody who operates an oil and gas company, or even some other verticals now, like the agriculture or the waste industry, people are identifying methane emissions as their number one strategic issue that they want to choose to focus on. And that was certainly not true a couple of years ago, but, you know, we could see it coming and, you know, we saw the the cards on the wall. The cards on the table are the writing on the wall. Why do you think that sentiment has been changing and what was it that tipped you off that it was likely coming? I mean, I think the one thing that I knew that a lot of folks in the industry didn't know was that, you know, climate change is real. It's a pressing problem. And it was going to be something that a lot of consumers were concerned about. And I think that wasn't always true at the time. And I think a lot of a lot of the industry thought, you know, we can just wait this one out. This is going to be a passing fad. People are going to forget about this and we'll just go on our merry way and we'll continue doing business as, as usual. And, you know, I think we, we made this strong bet that that was not going to be the case, that that people were concerned about what was in 
honestly, all of their supply chains, right? Like we've seen this happen to so many other products, whether it's like organic food, whether it's environmentally conscious, like fashion, but it hadn't yet really come to this one supply chain around energy and, and petrochemicals. And so I think looking back, it, it wasn't a crazy hypothesis, but it was just a little bit ahead of its time. <laughs> Uh-huh. And maybe just to close the loop on the troposphere part of the journey, so maybe talk about the merger and how that came about, why that came about, and when that came about as well. Yeah. So I think one thing that, that made our journey unique was that I and we decided to accept an early acquisition. In our space, You know, we had seen maybe one acquisition already of a similar you know, company in, in our like little sub-vertical. And that was this company called Rebellion Photonics that was acquired by Honeywell in like 2018. And they have these these cameras that sit on sites mostly for refineries. They're kind of expensive. So you got to put them on high value assets and they would scan for emissions. But to put some context here, this was back in the middle of COVID. So I had certainly been putting together a seed round, probably right as the pandemic hit. <laughs> you know, I was supposed to, I'll never forget, I was supposed to go into a partner meeting with a, a big strategic investor that I was really, really excited about. We had been talking for like six months. We had been working on all of the, the documents and I was supposed to finally go in and, and meet with the partners. And it was supposed to, the meeting was going to be on a Monday, on a Friday, our governor declared a state of emergency and, and everything shut down. And I got a call from them on Monday that was like, hey, you know, let's do this as a call. But just as an FYI, we are no longer deploying capital for the foreseeable future. And, you know, other folks pulled out of that too. So there was some, you know, poor timing that started out with COVID. Timing, of course, is, is everything. But we were able to shift some things around. And, and at that point, we had revenue. So we were able to make it through the pandemic. But as we started to see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, I learned a couple strategic things, one of which was that the type of product that we are offering was really more like the BMW as opposed to the like, I don't know, Kia or something of our market. And that provided a little bit of a, I don't know, like a market disincentive for folks, because Already, you know, folks who benefit from more measurements tend to be people who are already doing better in the market, who are already making the right decisions around investment in greener technologies, cleaner technologies, training programs, all of the above. And so around the time someone had introduced me to this, this concept of this environmental assessment program that was out there in the market that was kind of providing like a carrot equivalent to like our stick, if you will, and would, you know, reward people by certifying them and saying like, hey, you know, this is a really environmentally responsible production. And so that was how I kind of ended up getting introduced to the folks at, at Project Canaries as they first ended up acquiring that certification program who I was trying to, you know, set something up with. And just to clarify, Anna, so the stick was the methane monitoring and the methane monitoring was also the BMW, just to follow the analogy through? Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of mixing of, of analogies here. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we charge people to monitor for essentially what's an environmental risk. And we do it in a way that makes us, you know, more expensive and it, because we get more data, essentially, because we've got sensors and equipment on site as opposed to taking one sensor and like moving it around all of the sites. So it's like a like a high-end stick, essentially. It's like a high-end stick, right? And why, why would someone willingly pay for any stick, let alone a high-end stick? 
Exactly. And it's one of the reasons is because people, you know, some companies have a culture of excellence where they say, you know, we we are a good operator. We are good engineers. We don't want our systems to leak and we want to pay to to prove that it doesn't leak. We want to genuinely know because if there's an issue, we want to fix it really fast. And, you know, it turns out those people absolutely do exist because, you know, at Project Canary, they form a lot of our customer base. But I think, you know, that costs them money. Like ops folks love that. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily communicate the value of that to customers. Like, you know, if you talk to an average customer, like I at this point have a more sophisticated understanding of, you know, which operators have, you know, environmentally friendly policies, which have good safety policies, the whole rigmarole, but consumers don't and gas buyers don't. The largest buyer of of natural gas in in the United States, one of the larger buyers of natural gas in the United States is actually utilities for, for power generation. And those folks certainly don't know. They oftentimes don't even know what's in their supply chain. So, you know, the analogy here is, is we can we can certainly offer the tools and technology that help people improve, but we definitely want to be incentivizing and rewarding the good behavior that's that's already there. And that's, I think, where our environmental assessment program has has come in. And that got me really interested in in Project Canary. And so to close the loop, you know, they eventually approached me and I thought this is too early. This is too early. But, you know, eventually I saw this was back in 2021. I, I think I saw kind of the political winds changing a little bit, particularly in the industry. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, I think I was afraid that it would lessen concerns around climate change. But I think it turned out that that really strengthened people's resolve to do something. And I just thought, you know, I think if this is ever going to hit, if this is ever going to be a thing, if, if our, our wave is going to hit, it's going to be now and we're going to need to scale up fast and we're going to need to get capital fast and, you know, it's going to be tougher to do that out in the marketplace competing with another company. And, you know, certainly I am here to scale the company to get to generate shareholder returns. But by this point, I was just like, I just want to see this technology out in the world. And I thought, you know, by doing an early, early merger, we could get there a lot faster. And I think that's definitely what has happened. And it, it sounds like in your view, the monitoring is stick and the assessment is carrot. What is the difference between monitoring and assessment? So our monitoring is real time. It's 24-7. They send alerts any minute of the day. The sensors are sitting on the site. They're measuring for any emission source. We typically have a couple sensors. We have a wind meter that's on, on the sensor as well, so we can tell where things are coming from. And that's a little bit different than our environmental assessment, which takes place kind of at a yearly basis. We issue certificates on a monthly basis, so certainly there's an opportunity to lose them. But in the environmental assessment, we take a look at a whole lot of other engineering practices that affect what your emissions are are likely to be, but look at things that are more likely to be static. So we'll say, you know, hey, how this starts to get a little bit technical, but it's we'll look at how the well was constructed. We'll look at how the drilling happened. We'll go through and actually look our engineers look at like thousands of pages of documentation. And so we'll look through the drilling logs that took place from the site. If you don't have the drilling log, you know, if you don't have any of this information, we're, we're not able to give that certificate at the end of the day. And really, I think the difference is that at the end, you get like this holistic score that says, okay, like, yes, typically we've gone with, what is it? Gold, silver, and platinum have been our ratings. That's going to, I think, you know, we're thinking about possibly redoing that to make it, you know, a little bit easier to understand for the the general public. 
but that's a little bit different than the emissions data, which, you know, that's the company's data. That's their private data. You know, we don't share how many events they have. We don't share how, how long those events are. In the environmental assessment, we sum that up and we say, okay, you know, are you emissions rate above or below some of these key criteria that, that we set out? And so I think that's kind of why I think about the two a little bit differently. I think they really work in tandem, you know, our, our best... I think our best customers would definitely not describe the monitoring as a stick, but I think, you know, some of our, we're really lucky to work with some really good folks who really, really care about doing things the right way. And I mean, some of the responses I see in our data are actually pretty, pretty crazy in terms of like how fast people are responding to events that like I live in Texas and I drive through West Texas and you, you just, you look at some of this equipment and you're like, oh, like that's out of spec. Like that clearly hasn't been inspected in forever. That shouldn't be open. You know, that's rusted over in a way that you can tell it, you know, hasn't been looked at in a while. So, you know, it's, it's a really night and day difference, I would say, between the Project Canary, like good customers who are really, really at it and, and going for it. And in, in terms of your customer base today, I mean, to the extent that you can share, it'd be helpful to understand just order of magnitude, how many customers, but also is the entry point more on the monitoring side or is the entry point more on the assessment side? And directionally, do they tend to go together and most customers end up using both or is it heavily weighted to one versus another? That's a great question. So so we've we've got contracts with over 50 plus different firms I actually have to grab the that might actually be closer to 60 today depending on what is what's happened in our sales dashboard and so I think we've really got quite wide scale we hit this winter we surpassed over a thousand sensors out in the wild so that's certainly really exciting sorry Jason am I answering the question here part of it so that that's the number of customers and then out of those, do you tend to lead with the monitoring or the assessment? And do the bulk of your customers use one versus another, or do they tend to end up using both? Yeah, great question. Thanks for that. So I think it, the answer is it varies a little bit. I think a lot of folks are really interested in the certification. You know, they're interested in having a holistic environmental assessment that they can give to some of their key stakeholders, whether those are their investors, whether those are their end customers. And a lot of times, but not always, that gets that means that they're interested in doing the monitoring. There certainly are folks who are approaching us about one but not the other. I would say that most of our customers are using both, but certainly not all. And what is the addressable market today? And how do you see that evolving over time? Oh, boy. I mean, I think about our, you know, certainly we have numbers around, you know, what do we think is the addressable market for this? And, and by the way, I mean, numbers are good, but I, I was asking more about like, what types of customers do you serve today? And then how do you envision that evolving over time? Okay, great, great. Because I was going to say, oh boy, I would have to like pull Yeah, no, I'm not asking here. for like, <laughs> tell me your TAM or hey, oh. it, it, it's, yeah. So I, you know, we really took this to market in, you know, one segment of the natural gas value chain, really. And we have seen that pretty rapidly shift to expand that that supply chain. So first of all, that includes pipelines now, whereas it didn't before. We see this expanding and evolving beyond energy. Like the things I've talked about today, I think are really specific to the work we do in oil and gas, but we're seeing this go, this need for rigorous ESG data that's backed up by actual measurements, not estimates, to be a need in lots of other verticals. 
Some of those verticals have emission profiles that look a lot like oil and gas. So for example, landfills or agriculture. But I think, you know, we're also thinking about things like carbon sequestration. We're also thinking about anywhere where folks are trying to get to net zero and and need numbers to do so. And we think that's a pretty large swath of, of opportunities that, you know, do not just involve energy. And putting aside your work, I guess this is more of a personal question, but when you think about the clean energy transition, how do you think about the role of fossil fuels in the short, medium, and long term? And how do you think about the role of fossil fuel companies in the short, medium, and long term? Yeah, it's a a great question. And I I think, you know, in terms of companies, I think there's definitely a, a wide variation of companies. You know, there are certainly companies who I think are changing fast, and and there are some companies who maybe aren't changing as fast. I think the companies who don't change, who aren't getting on board, are are probably not going to be here for the long term. You know, certainly we see large statements about diversification from some of the larger industrial companies, you know, like the Shells, the Equinors, the BPs of the world. But, you know, I, I will say that there's been a lot of skepticism from American companies but we're also seeing them start to come around. You know, I was recently at this big conference called Zero Week a couple of weeks ago, and we now have people calling for zero methane emissions, which like that statement is pretty crazy compared to where we were even a year or two ago. So it's a little bit hard to speculate, you know, what this is going to look like on a, on a go forward basis. I think there are lots of interesting questions, though, in terms of you know, how our energy mix is, is going to change, what it means to think about shifting from a grid that's powered by coal and natural gas as baseload to start to think about what it looks like when we're using natural gas instead as a, as a battery. I think there's lots of interesting infrastructure questions that I'm not quite hearing discussed or, or addressed, but that's one of the interesting changes that I think I'm tracking and following is, is seeing like what happens as we start to scale up renewables so that they can take on the majority of that baseload, but still need some of that backup battery power that hasn't yet come from, you know, the types of large grid scale battery storage, like, you know, the form energies of, of the world. So, you know, I, my answer is that I, I think that the energy transition is certainly chugging along, you know, how fast that'll take, how long that'll take. I really wish I had those numbers because I think, you know, if, if I could predict that precisely, like maybe I'd be doing this interview from, you know, Hawaii or some, somewhere on the beach, like drinking Mai Tais. But it's definitely happening. It's coming along. And I think as we're seeing with the geopolitical situation where we're in as we're recording this, the war between Russia and Ukraine is very much still on. And, you know, there a lot of people are banning Russian oil, but they're not banning Russian gas. So Europe is very much still reliant on Russian gas. And, you know, I think there's two calls that we're seeing out in the market. One is to, you know, switch to scale up the supply of things like American gas. The other is to scale up the supply of renewables. I suspect when, you know, most people are given like binary choices, the answer is almost certainly somewhere, somewhere in the middle. And so I think these are tough, tough choices that people have to face for probably the next couple of of winters. But, you know, I I do know and I want to recognize that our predictions for what happened with solar pricing were just so far off, right? Like, you know, we did not, nobody expected the price of, of solar panels to come down quite so precipitously. And that's not something that I see adjusted for in the economic models, you know, on a go forward basis and in terms of what does our energy supply mix look like going forwards. 
I did a fun exercise the other day where I actually looked at, you know, what were the 20, <laughs> what were the 2010 predictions from like EIA about what our energy supply mix would look like today? And you, you compare the two and it's just like, it's like night and day. So I want to say, I want to recognize my own inability to forecast the future on this one. Uh-huh. And is one of the objections that you get that the work that you do helps prolong the transition away from fossil fuels and separately from whatever objections you might get from the market? Is that something that you personally wrestle with? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's something that, you know, we certainly hear a lot, or, or maybe not a lot, but, you know, certainly from there's some environmental communities who who have raised that objection. I think it's something that, like, we talk about our company as, as a big tent. And so we certainly have a range of political perspectives, professional experiences, etc. From a personal note, it, it is certainly something that I think about. Then again, I also have to recognize that, you know, today, this is a product that I'm involved in consuming, like I, I rent. And so, you know, I have a gas stove and I know that the gas that comes into my stove is coming from, well, I actually have no idea where it's coming from, right? It could be coming from a good operator, but, it, you know, I live in Texas. And so that, that makes it unlikely. It means that probably a lot of that methane got lost into the atmosphere before it got into my stove. And so, you know, I, I think the world's a little bit of a, a messy place and cutting off methane emissions is like really the fastest lever that I and, and we have to pull in terms of climate. And I think the sort of way to explain it is that, that methane is a little bit shorter lived of a greenhouse gas. So what that means is that if we can get rid of methane emissions today, we're going to be able to see reduced warming by mid-century, which is really, really an exciting promise. So I think, yeah, that is absolutely a tough question, you know, but for now, I think this is absolutely technology that we need that needs to exist and is creating, you know, some, some real benefits. And you mentioned earlier that, that your offerings tend to be most valuable to the good citizens, if you will, in the marketplace. I'm wondering, does that sort itself out naturally or are there situations where bad citizens might try to become customers? And what is the philosophy? Can anyone with a wallet buy from you or would you or have you turned customers down? And similarly, have there been situations either with prospective or existing customers where where profit and impact have not been aligned and how have you handled them? So the first thing I'll say is that, you know, we are happy to work with anyone, but that does not guarantee that they get high marks. And so, you know, our environmental assessment has, I mentioned that there's three tiers. There is actually a fourth tier, which is just rated, which means we came in, we looked at your facilities, and we gave you some great suggestions about how to improve. You know, our philosophy is not that we are the folks who tell you to get from A to B. It's that we are the bean counters. Like we are the data people. We tell you what the data is. It's your data. You know, we hope that you make good decisions off of it. That's not to say, you know, there, there are plenty of consulting services that exist in the market to tell you, you know, the best way to do things. We just think that the bean counting people, you know, the accounting people should not be the services people. We think, you know, it's important to have the accounting in the market. And so, yeah, I think certainly as we go on, we're likely to have folks who, you know, just because because of a bell curve, right? Like everyone wants to be above average, not everyone is. And, and sometimes that's 
nobody's fault, right? Like sometimes that's geology rather than than any any human's decision. Or sometimes it's, you know, someone decides to buy an asset and they weren't aware what was in it. So I think there's a lot of reasons for which we'll see our customer base shift over over time. But that's not such a big concern for me. Well, I'll maybe tell some stories about what has happened when we've given ratings that perhaps people don't always appreciate because that really does happen. And, you know, we're so lucky to have an internal team that really sticks to their guns. Like I would I would not want to be, you know, on the receiving end of, of trying to convince them to like try and change something. And so some of that just comes down to culture, right? It's hiring good people who are like, no, like we're sticking to our guns and we're here to do good work. And that's that's what we're here to do. So I think, you know, is there sometimes dissatisfaction? Yep. <laughs> you know, I think there's there's no way to sugarcoat it. But I think we've done a good job in explaining to people like, no, this high standard is is what you're paying for. Like you are paying for the risk that, you know, you might not like the answer here. And sometimes it's something they can fix. Sometimes it's something that, you know, you might not ever be able to fix. Like, you know, maybe you had a fatality on a site. Like we're just, you know, our, our view is, nope, sorry. Like that's, that's not something we can, we can say was responsible. And, you know, to date, I think we've been lucky because our customers have, have really seen the value for that of saying, you know, we've got a really strict third party that's coming in and, and really looking under the hood. And, you know, we're not always happy with what they, what they find or what they have to say, but globally, we're happy with the result. Uh-huh. And when you think about the future, what are some of the barriers that inhibit Project Canary from scaling faster and fulfilling your mission more fully and more quickly? Oh, boy. I mean, so, you know, we've just, I'm, we're recording this a few weeks after we've just announced $111 million Series B. And so, you know, were I recording this before that, I probably would have been like, oh, capital, Today, some of it is just the speed of like, you know, getting bodies in the door, you know, scaling up manufacturing. Like this has been, I think, a really interesting lesson in just how some of this stuff happens at like human scale. Like like some deploying software is is nearly very quickly scalable. We have many processes that are very scalable, but are not quite as scalable as simply, you know, you clone and I don't know, an instance or have to install a package on, you know, lots and lots of machines. So I would say it's that level of growth that today I think inhibits us. I don't want to say inhibits us, right? Because I I think, you know, there's a pace at which you, you know, you don't want to grow too fast, right? Like, so I think some of that's normal, some of that's natural. And I think we're lucky to kind of be in that phase right now where it's really just like execute, execute, execute. And, you know, the more people we get in, the more more training we get done allows us to uncover things like, oh, boy, you know, gee, like we remember this customer that we talked to like six months ago and we never tracked them down. Like we should probably give them a call back. And that type of thing is a lot easier to do with a team of 70 people than it is with a team of seven people. And when it comes to the certifications, given that sometimes customers aren't going to like what they get, I mean, do they try to get certainty before they open their wallets about whether the results will be something that will be marketable? So, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes people have certainly asked. We're pretty clear, like, no, this is the way it works. And I think some of these are issues that, like, they need more explaining in the beginning. Now I think that, you know, folks have seen so many other people go through, it's a lot easier to point out and say, well, you know, all of these companies have 
have happily and readily gone through this process. And so, you know, that I think a lot of these concerns were certainly like harder decisions to make in the beginning, but get easier as we go along. Uh And if you think about factors that are outside of your control, if you could change one of them that would most accelerate your progress, what would you change and how would you change it? More hours in the day. So you know what you need to do, but it never goes away. And so just finding more time and more resource to get more of it done and check more things off the list. Yeah, definitely. I think we're very much in in execute mode and I think everyone's just crazy busy. So if anyone on my team is is listening to this, like, thank you, go take a nap. We love you. <laughs> How important is policy for your work? You know, it's a great question. It's interesting, but not critical, I think. Like, so, you know, the reason that people measured methane emissions historically has been because of regulations. You know, we essentially offer like voluntary compliance I was going to say, it reminds me of offsets, like, you know, voluntary versus the uh, compliance market. And I have the same question here as I do about offsets, which is how far can the voluntary market take you? Like, there's only so many bleeding hearts. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's what's so interesting in this market is that we are starting to see that penetration and, and scale in terms of what has traditionally been called like a, a voluntary market. But to go, I mean, to go back to the policy question, you know, the, the EPA is redoing regulations around methane. We've been active and engaging in, in that space. I've, Do you have a policy team? Yeah, we have a policy team. I co-wrote a bunch of our, our work for the EPA. It's, it's all public. You can go look it up on, I actually forget where you look it up, but I'm sure it, like it's like the EPA website or something. You know, the SEC has been releasing rules, proposed rules just two weeks ago on disclosing emissions. And that would include, you know, scope three emissions for some companies. So those are indirect emissions. So if you're a utility, for example, that would include methane emissions from upstream oil and gas companies. And if you're an oil and gas company, that would include having some measurement of your scope one emissions. So that's really big. We're also seeing FERC, which is the pipeline, essentially the the pipeline governing body, who's also been really interested and active in thinking about ESG issues. So I think a lot of the policy is is moving and evolving in, in really, really interesting ways. But, you know, we certainly do see it moving faster, I would say, on the the like economic side. So like the SEC type rules, I think are more likely to go through and with fewer comments than the EPA rules, which I view that to be that's going to be a pretty lengthy process. And everyone suggests to me that there's going to be several lawsuits involved as well. Uh huh. And given that you're call out for what you could change is more hours in the day. Where do you need help? For anyone listening that's inspired by your work, who do you want to hear from, if anyone? That's a great question. So, you know, at Project Canary, we are hiring. We're hiring for all the usual suspects, whether that's operations, whether that is software engineers, whether that's petroleum engineers. You know, we certainly love to hire experienced petroleum engineers to help with our environmental assessments. You know, supply chain, active, active area. Go to projectcanary.com and we've we've got a number of, of job opportunities available. And if there are none available, certainly reach out anyways, because there are certainly a number of opportunities that will come up in in the months to come. Anna, anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Oh, boy. Jason, you have so many smart people on your podcast. Like People who are listening to this should, should realize that any lessons learned on this are maybe worth what people paid for them. <laughs> 
So I hope it's helpful. <laughs> oh, no, I, I think you're selling yourself short. I mean, your your story is so inspiring. And also, it's just so relatable for so many of our listeners who are either, you know, somewhere along a similar journey or aspiring to be on a journey that you are, or they're sitting in the shoes of your customers or potential customers trying to figure out, you know, what to do with their own assets or or they're sitting in government trying to figure out, you know, how to regulate. Anyways, we covered a lot of ground and I have no doubt it will be quite useful to listeners. So thank you. Well, good, good. And best of luck. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.